as you make your way back to your seats, just be prepared. This is, a, this is an intense morning. Got to let you know that out of the gate. We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. We've entered into the final week before Jesus' crucifixion, and we're actually in kind of the final 24 hours. We're on Thursday evening of before what we now know as Good Friday. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Jesus has taken his disciples to the Mount of Olives just outside the city. He's already had the new Passover meal. He's reframed that as a story that's ultimately about himself, that everything that's about to happen, that has happened, is happening, is centered on himself as a person, that he is the focal point of God's story in the Old Testament, that he's the culmination, he's the bottom line. And what's about to happen in Jerusalem is all a part of God's plan and all of history has been building to this, but the disciples are still trying to figure out how that makes any sense because it's, it's that that's like oil and water in terms of their worldview. So verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So this is a passage that if you've been reading it through the Gospels, if you arrive here, this part, verse 32, begins with some very dark foreshadowing. Jesus, one of the things you might notice in the Gospels after you read through them and and kind of have eyes to see is that Jesus sometimes does things in particular places in order to present a greater and fuller picture of what's actually happening. And that's what we see him doing here. And Mark is highlighting it right out of the gate. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now that line should give us pause. Mark is presuming that when we hear that, we're going to know enough about the context that our stomach drops a little bit. It's very, very foreboding. Why is that? Well, within the Christian subculture, what's often referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the things that's that's important to understand is that Gethsemane isn't primarily the name of a particular place. It's more, uh, it's better to say it refers to a particular kind of object that is located in a certain kind of place. They're in the Mount of Olives. They're in an olive, olive grove. But it says they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane 
comes from two Hebrew words. Gat, which is the Hebrew word that means a place for pressing, and Shemanim, which is the Hebrew word for oil. So when it says they went to a place called Gethsemane, those who are conversant with the language would hear they went to the place of the olive press. And that's pretty significant because it gives us a word picture through which, a lens through which to understand everything that's about to happen. Now, we don't necessarily know, have that word picture in mind, so I want to kind of play it out for I want to show it to you because Mark assumes that the rest of what happens, you're going to be thinking through the lens of a Gatshemenin, an oil press. This is how olive oil was extract, extracted in ancient times. You have an olive tree. Farmer takes a stick, beats the branch when the olives are ripe. Uh, olives fall to the ground, and you pick up the fallen olives. And then what you do is you put, you remove the, uh, p- the pits, and you uh, place the olives in this basin. And the basin has a large millstone attached to it. And if you have a beast of burden, if you're wealthy enough to have a beast of burden, you can have the beast of burden cycle around, and it will just cause that millstone to just crush, crush, crush. Sometimes people will do it, obviously, by hand. This is also a job that uh, some children did in ancient times. And the oil from the uh, olives would flow into a container underneath the press, and what you were left with was kind of crushed olive pulp. And this was called, this is the first pressing. And the idea here is that the wine that emerges from this first pressing is the best wine. It's the first fruits, just like a harvest. It's the first fruits of the wine. And so it was used, uh, it would get siphoned off right away for any kind of holy or anointing ceremonies at the temple. Also used for lamps and even some cosmetics. Now, if we go to the next picture, what happens is all the pulp from that original first pressing is gathered up and it's placed into small uh, square baskets that are quite flat and you pack the baskets with as much pulp as you can and then you stack these baskets. Uh, Yeah, you can kind of see it better over here. You stack the baskets on top of each other in a column and then there's this large, large plank of wood as you can see that stretches back through the olive press, out the other wall. And you have these massive rocks, which are hung, which are normally on the ground. And then what happens is you have men lifting them. They shorten, obviously, the, the rope give, attaching the, uh, the piece of lumber, and then it causes it to sink. And what happens is there's just a massive amount of ex- uh, force that gets exerted on that pressure point of the olive baskets, which over hours and over days just squeezes every last drop of liquid, siphons it off, water gets poured through on the top, the water and oil separates in a basin underneath uh, this press. But what you're left with in these baskets is um, almost all the moisture from the pulp has been removed, so you're almost left with a fine dust. It's it's, uh, almost completely... Um, extracted. I thought about this, the sense of pressure and the pressure that would be exerted on this uh, the other week because I was at the gym and one of the things we have to do at the gym is a exercise called weighted plank. 
So you, it's pretty basic. You just assume a push-up position, except that someone who's a partner with you in the, in the, uh, the exercise, they take a 45-pound plate, and they gently place it on your back. They don't drop it. They place it. And then you just hold that. You hold yourself in position. And it's deceivingly kind of tough. At the start, it's not that bad. It doesn't feel that uncomfortable. But as you hold it for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, what begins to happen is involuntarily your shoulder muscles and everything begins to shake. You can feel every part of your core, your legs, everything just begins shaking. Just a steady pressure begins applying itself to, and your systems begin to get taxed. And then you do this for a few rounds and, you know, you get this sweat. I'm looking straight down at the ground, right? And the sweat is getting squeezed out of me as this pressure is brought to bear. It's only 45 pounds, but it's sustained. And I thought, you know, wow, that's, you know, for me, that's kind of like an embodied experience in a small way of what this phenomenon of what's happening here. This massive amount of pressure that is just squeezing the oil out of these olives. And when Mark highlights that this is where they went, they went to a Gat Shemanim, an olive press. You know, he writes, they went to a place called Gethsemane. But what he wants us to feel, and I think what God wants us to feel through Mark's writing is Jesus and his disciples were in the Mount of Olives. But then Jesus very specifically takes them to a place where things are pressed down and crushed into dust. That's a context for what's going to happen. Jesus is using the environment to help his disciples understand what he is walking through. Whatever's about to happen, the Bible wants to make it clear that Jesus is moving into a dark place, a place of pressure, severe pressure, and unbearable agony, where in some way, Jesus' life is going to be slowly squeezed out of him. Verse 32, they went to the place called Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Jesus takes his three closest friends. Even amongst the 12, there are three, and they show up a few times in the gospel where Jesus removes them specifically in order to share an experience with them. And it says that Jesus begins to enter a state, two Greek words, ekthembeo and adamoneo, and they're words that uh, have this kind of linguistic um, spectrum, if you will, of how you can uh, translate them. But viscerally, they're trying to communicate he was overwhelmed, or ekthembeo can also be astounded. Like when you see God's glory, you're astounded, you're dumbstruck. So Jesus is moving into a place of distress and anguish, that's adamoneo, to the degree that would leave a regular person kind of dumbstruck. It's an overwhelming um, you can't actually categorize it through words. You wouldn't be able to say, well, it's kind of like this. It's unparalleled in its severity. Writing of one of the characters in Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this, and I think this is a good way of maybe putting in a slightly more modern way uh, what Jesus is walking into. Tolkien writes, 
He knew that all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. And the next day would be a day of doom. And it would be a day of final effort and a day of the last gasp. Jesus begins to experience the cross. And that's why most theologians will say the passion of Jesus, the weight and suffering of Jesus, this is actually where it begins, not just when he starts carrying the cross. It's here that he began to feel deeply distressed and and troubled. He knows what he's walking into. He knows he's going to face the cross. That is a plan that he and God the Father had come up with before the foundation of the world. But it's all, as we would say, that's been, it's been kind of like head knowledge. That's been the plan on paper. Now it's becoming real. Now the weight of it is setting in. Now the pressure point, pressure is beginning to build. And what was abstract is now becoming very real. And he's experiencing it in his person. Jesus says, verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Will you stay awake? Will you pray for me? Will you, will you um, just be with me as I walk this road? The pressure's mounting. It's seemingly unbearable. Even here, Jesus is exposing himself in vulnerability to his disciples and saying, I, I feel like this is not, I can't sustain this. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. I feel like I'm going to be overwhelmed into death right now. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And the hour is shorthand for his death, the crucifixion. Throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus Jesus continually refers to the hour. And that's just shorthand for that time when I'm going to give up my life on the cross. And he's saying, if possible, could the hour pass from me? Could I not have to go down this road? Is there any other way? Verse 36, Abba, Father. Abba is this term of endearment, this term of intimacy, this term of vulnerability. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Again, some of the language there might get lost in us. Jesus says, take this cup from me. What cup is he referring to? In the Old Testament, in the prophets, there is the cup of God's wrath, which becomes a pretty prominent theme in two of the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 17, it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Isaiah 51, Awake, arise, Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to the, to the dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. So you have this Old Testament illustration, or um, 
it's kind of this picture of God's wrath being contained in a cup, but then ultimately poured out against the enemies of God. When Jesus says, take this cup from me, there is a bit of a presumption that we know enough of the Old Testament to understand the cup that he's referring to isn't a cup of joy. It's not a cup of peace. It's not a cup that overflows with God's blessing. It's a cup of wrath. Not just to particular nations, but to all nations and all people. Jesus is going to present himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And what that means is this cup of wrath is wrath against every expression of sin that has ever manifested itself in the heart, mind, actions of people. Now, I understand that for a lot of people, especially in our context, talking about wrath generally, connecting wrath to God specifically, is very uncomfortable. Culturally, we're very comfortable with a God who loves and a God who's compassionate and merciful, a God who is wrathful, I think many people in our culture today just associate that with kind of primitive religion. But let me at least plant this thought in your mind if you find yourself being quick to say, I, I would never believe in a God of wrath. And, I, and I, I, I just reject any kind of connection of a God of wrath with the good, loving, merciful God that I experience in Jesus. A good God if God is truly good, he has to be wrathful against sin. The only way he couldn't be is if either sin isn't a big deal and it's an offense of the order of like, ah, don't worry about it. But if sin is significantly damaging to creation, to God's image bearers, if it defaces God's good creation, that God said, I love these people in this creation and I have a vision for the kind of world and relationships. That, um, I, I, have a, I have a vision for the kind of life that I want to lead humanity into. And by their sinful decisions and intentions and actions in all kinds of ways, have creatively found different ways to live with their fingers stick, stuck up to God. God uh, resisted in all kinds of ways and even acting in ways that are intentionally defiant to God's purposes and commands. How could a loving God simply observe that and be like, eh, what are you going to do? Just love. At that point, love doesn't become love, right? It becomes an abdication of responsibility. It becomes an abdication of leadership. It actually becomes an abdication of justice. Because if something good that is truly beautiful and good is being destroyed, you have to be angry at that. And God has created an ontological system, meaning a framing of all of reality, where no sin can go unpunished because he's good, he's holy. And his holiness demands that even to, there has to be recompense of some kind for even a small sin. And so if you can imagine, stretch your imagination to think through all the genocidal acts, all of the mistreatment, the oppression, individually, collectively, all of the violence, all of the hatred, all of the lust, all of it. And the wrath that should be connected to each of those individual and systemic sins 
all gets gathered together, poured into one cup, and then handed to Jesus to drink. That's for you to take into yourself. Willingly, this is not inflicted upon Jesus. He understands that his life will be a ransom. He's agreed to do this. But the weight of it is still, is still something that we can't really wrap our heads and hearts around. He is taking into himself the wrath of God, the just wrath of God for the sins of the world, that he might, in a sense, stand between us and the wrath of God the Father and say, I will take it on their behalf. I will absorb it into myself. Verse 37. He prays, he says, take this cup from me. This is what I want in my humanity. If there's any other way, I don't want to go, I don't want to go down this road, but I submit myself to your will, God. If there's, if there's any other way, let's figure out a plan B. But if not, then your will be done. I'm not here to, to bargain with you. I'm here to ask, now that the pressure is mounting, but your will be done. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch? For one hour? Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been let down by Christian friends? Don't point your finger. Just raise your hand. No finger pointing. Just raise your hand. If you've been let down by Christian friends, Jesus knows how you feel. He knows what it means to be let down. By people who should have known better and done better. Jesus says, Peter, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. Don't go over that. Mark's gospel is short. Think about that. He's gone away. Pray. Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup, but not my will, but your will be done. Comes back, disciples sleeping. Goes back again. Sequesters himself. Says the same prayer. I'm coming again, God. I prayed this maybe for an hour ago, but I'm coming back to pray for another hour. If there's any other way, but not as I will, but your will be done. I found, Greg, do you want to put up the piece of art that I found? I like this piece of art. It was um, kind of evocative. It's a really dark image. Uh, it's maybe a little bit hard to see with the lights on here, but they're kind of the, dis- the disciples are in the foreground of the art. And um, this particular image emerges from the Gospel of Luke, who tells us that, Jesus, at some point in the evening, when he was praying to God, that God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. And I thought about that this year because um, in, I don't know, when I was meeting with uh, Carrie Dick, who passed away a few weeks ago, one of the things he talked about in one of our meetings, he said, he goes, I know two things will happen. He said, I know that I'm praying for God to heal me. I know God can heal me if he wants to. And I'm praying for that. But he said, I just read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I remember reading that God didn't take Jesus out of the Garden, but he sent an angel to strengthen him. So I've been praying, God, if you can heal me, do it. That would be awesome. And I believe you can, God. But if you can't heal me, would you strengthen me to walk this final, this final um, stretch of my life for your glory? We see that happening in Luke. And Luke actually tells us in verse 44 that Jesus was under such anguish that he prayed more earnestly 
and his sweat was like drops of blood that were falling to the ground. And that is not, that's not Jewish hyperbolic writing. That's not exaggeration. There's a medical condition that can occur under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. And basically what happens is your blood capillaries that feed into your sweat glands, they rupture because your sympathetic nervous system spikes so aggressively that uh, your body actually can't handle it. The blood vessels rupture, blood gets into your sweat glands, you begin sweating, uh, sweat and blood. Uh, Hemoditrios is uh, is the medical condition. It's also been suggested that acute fear can cause this, but uh, more prevalently symptomatic of extreme psychological or emotional stress. Verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what they say to him. How many of you have like really, really been let down by Christian friends. Hands up. Anybody here been really, really let down by Christian friends? Maybe so much so that when you confronted them, they didn't really know what to say to you. I, I, was, I was tired. I was busy. I got distracted. Found something that was fun. I didn't realize you needed me there that badly. If you've really, really been let down by your Christian friends, then Jesus knows how you feel. Verse 41, returning the third time. Just stop there. This is number three. Goes away. Comes back. And before you go one verse, one word further in this verse, I want There's something really important to note here. Mark records that three times Jesus goes to the Father and petitions, honestly, as emotionally and psychologically exposed as he can to say, can can, can this cup pass? Is there any other way that we can get to the same end of forgiveness and restoration and redemption and and atonement for their sin? And what, what might not strike us here is how unique what is happening here is in the context of history. You have the central figure of a major movement facing his death, but he's not doing it with the kind of heroism that you might want him to or that you might expect him to be able to muster. This account of Jesus repeatedly petitioning to have this cup pass reveals something very significant about the nature of his death. Timothy Keller writes it like this. There are lots and lots and lots of true accounts of Christian men and women, Christian leaders, Christian lay people who've been killed for their faith. They've been thrown to animals, they've been burned at the stake, they've been tortured. We have lots and lots of stories of almost all of them. And pretty much all of them face death more calmly than Jesus. They all did a better job, it seems, at facing death than Jesus did. Here's an example. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. He's a Christian leader. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. Near the end of his life, he's killed for his faith. He's brought before a Roman magistrate, and he's given one last chance to renounce Christianity and to recant his his faith. The magistrate essentially says to him, I'm going to give you one more chance. You can reject Christianity, turn your back on your faith. 
Otherwise, you're going to be burned in the fire. You're going to be burned alive. And we don't know exactly what Polycarp said. It's been passed down through church history. But, you know, this is a pretty good approximation of what he likely said. Earliest reports are that his response to the magistrate was, the fire you speak of lasts for about an hour and it's quenched pretty quickly. But do you know the fire of judgment? Come on, don't delay, do whatever you will. That is not Jesus' reaction to staring into the face of the cross. Jesus isn't going heroically into this death in the way that other Christian martyrs have. Why? Again, Mark wants to make sure we see that it's because Jesus isn't just facing his own death. He's facing his, facing his own death, but layered on top of that is he is fa- facing the full weight and pressure of God's right and just judgment and wrath that's going to be focused like a laser and he's going to absorb it into his heart. He's not just facing death. He's facing death and wrath and judgment. Unfiltered in its totality. Returning a third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Jesus, he's experiencing anguish that is beyond words to try and capture. He returns to find them sleeping and resting again. How many of you have been really, really, really let down by Christian friends? Anybody have that experience? Really, really, really let down? If you have, then Jesus knows how you feel. He knows what it's like to be utterly abandoned by those who should have known better, those who should have done more, those who should have stayed vigilant, those who should have cared enough to stay awake and to at least be with him and suffer with him. And I read this passage and I thought, yeah, what what, what flooded into my mind is all the people who in a moment of pressure, I needed them to be there for me and they didn't. And the ones that hurt the most were... Christian brothers and sisters. But then I came across a quote by the famous preacher A.W. Pink, who said, When tempted to be disgusted at the dullness of another, call to remembrance God's infinite patience and long-suffering with yourself. Verse 41, enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. We're now moving into a new gear on the road to the cross. But even here, even before we get to the cross, the gospel is clearly on display. The gospel, you might say, of Gethsemane. And the gospel of Gethsemane is this. Because of Jesus' great love for you, Jesus took the cup of wrath so that you could be given the cup of salvation. And not just on the other side of death, but that you could receive that salvation now and begin to live a new life in him now. And because of his great love for you, Jesus entered the Gat Sheminim, 
Jesus entered the Gethsemane, the olive press, and was willing to bear that weight and to be pressed and crushed down to death so that you could be liberated and freed from the burden and weight of sin and judgment and God's wrath. You could be freed into eternal life. And there's two audiences I need to apply that to. The first is if you're here or if you're listening and you are not a believer, you are not a Christian. I want you to consider what is at stake if you deny or reject this Jesus and what he's done. Because the gospel proclamation is that Jesus willingly put himself in your place and died for your sins. He took your punishment on his, uh, into himself. But if you do not repent, that means turn from a self-centered life and embrace him and put your faith and trust in him. His death, is, uh, his death remains ineffectual towards you. It doesn't count. It's like Jesus um, has the money to pay the debt. He's paid the debt, but it hasn't been transferred to your account. And if you die with spiritual debt, you're on the hook to pay for it forever. Only Jesus can cover your debt because only Jesus has the precious resource, his blood squeezed and pressed out of him that can atone for your sin. So I would encourage you and I would compel you and I would implore you to call out to him and let him save you and lead you into a new life and a life that's free from the burden of sin and shame and guilt and judgment. And the second audience I need to address is Christians. Do you appreciate the weight that Jesus took upon himself for you? Because if you do, it should make sin and sinful patterns of behavior in your life increasingly detestable to you, and it should make Jesus and the gospel glorious. And when you understand the depth of Jesus' love that goes so far beyond sentimentality, but throws itself in between you and the right, just wrath of God, that should animate you as a Christian to go into the world and in ways big and small, pour out your life, pour out your lives for others. That should animate you to glorify God in ways big and small because now you live with the assurance that in Christ your sins are forgiven. But more than just forgiven, you're not just forgiven in Jesus. That is amazing. But also that now you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit can now dwell within you in God's plan to rescue and restore and redeem all of his creation actually can find a focal point in your life. And your life and story can be swept up into that greater life of redemption and hope. May all of us in this room, believer or not, skeptic, Christian, may we consider the gospel of Gethsemane because there is no other good news like it. Let's pray. God, for a life and a love that is willing to be pressed down and and crushed,
and says yes to that mission, even in the midst of friends who are, couldn't be bothered to just stay awake and to pray. But that's all of us, God. We, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak and helpless and spiritual losers and resisting you, while, we, while you weren't even on our radar, you died for us. May the truth, may that truth just, oh man, may it just grip us in ways that, um, that it never has before, God. We love you. We give you thanks and praise. May our lives, moving forward, have a greater expression of worship as we live out the implications of this love. Amen.